Hello, and welcome to the AMP podcast. My name is Ed, and I'm an executive director here at AMP Analysis, and I will be your host for today. If you're new to the show, welcome. We hope you'll enjoy the episode. For context, Amper Analysis is a data and analytics firm specializing in the global entertainment industry. This podcast is all about bringing together expert voices from across the company to discuss the latest trends, research, and insights in the media sector. In this episode, we've got three guests who will be sharing their latest work with us, Lottie Towler, Neil Anderson, and Dan Harrigy. Let's begin by going around the table and having our guests introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Lottie Towler. I'm a research manager here at Ampere and I lead our content tracking division. So looking at the licensing and distribution of movie and TV titles on video and demand um, and linear TV. And myself and the team have been doing quite a lot of research recently into how franchises from the movie and TV industry have started overlapping quite a lot with um, IP from the games industry. Hi, I'm Neil Anderson. I focus on content spend trends uh, on the biggest broadcasters, pay TV groups and online video platforms. Today, I'll be talking about the decision in France to scrap the TV license fee and what this might mean for public broadcasting in France and abroad. Hello, I'm Dan Harrigy. I specialize in the sports media rights market and the world of sports business and finance. And I've been looking into the distribution of Premier League TV revenues and the factors that might be impacting why that should be changed in the future. You are listening to the AMP podcast from Ampere Analysis. To learn more about Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com. We start today by looking at the games industry and how intellectual property from recent years has started bleeding over into movies and TV. In the past year alone, we've seen lots of major releases with games IP going into the movie and TV industries. For example, Uncharted, which made over 400 million at box office, Halo and Arcane, which were original TV series from Paramount and Netflix respectively, based on major video games, and of course The Witcher, which whilst not originally a video game, was certainly popularised through its gaming trilogy and has become a huge global series recently on Netflix. I'll be discussing this with Lottie, who recently co-authored a report looking at IP crossover between games and the movie and TV business. So Lottie, as someone who studied the crossover in IP between video games and entertainment in great detail, what big picture takeaways did you find in terms of the flow of content and the kind of deals that we're seeing between the games and the movie and TV industries? So I'd say one of the biggest overarching trends was just the increase in game adaptations that we're seeing when it comes to movie and TV content. And while historically there was quite a lot of IP flowing in the opposite direction, so games being made from movie and TV IP, particularly to coincide with big box office releases, for example, moving in the other direction is uh, relatively more recent. And in the past 10 years or so, uh, this has been increasing steadily. And in the last few years, we're starting to see players like Netflix and Amazon commissioning more of this type of content. Another thing we've actually noticed is that the quality of these game adaptations are also increasing. So while before they were probably targeted very much at uh, the fans of the game, these titles are becoming more high profile and geared towards a wider audience. So we're seeing higher critics reviews and scores for these titles. Those are, those are really interesting trends, uh, both from a quality and from a kind of content flow uh, standpoint. What do you think is behind both the kind of drive in gaming IP moving towards movies and TV and also that increase in quality that you describe? So there's a couple of different things sort of playing into this. One of the main drivers is from a consumer standpoint that there's a really big overlap between 
consumers that have Esfold services and those that play video games. So it's quite an attractive consumer group to target. In terms of production, as the uh, SVOD market is becoming more and more fragmented, having access to those really high profile, popular franchises becoming more and more important. Um, so using games IP is really a way to create new franchises for SVOD players, particularly as they might have lost those that they previously licensed as studios have brought all of their content back in house. And for all players, for SVOD platforms and also major studios, they recognize the value in using games IP. So leveraging the existing fan bases and also the really kind of rich worlds that these games have built. And there's a bit less risk if you're creating a really high cost title to use those sort of um, franchises that have existing fans around the world. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And um, just thinking, Neil, are there any particular sort of types of content that we're seeing making this transition or, or types of content that are playing particularly well when moving over from the games industry? Yeah, I mean, just thinking about some of um, those titles that have been adapted uh, from video games, I think a large share of those could be included in the, the sci-fi and fantasy genre. Um, looking at some of the genre spend trends uh, that we've seen uh, for some of the larger streamers, Sci-fi and fantasy has been um, quite a big focus with investment increasing over the last few years. I think also looking uh, from a consumer perspective, uh, we've seen in our survey that sci-fi and fantasy continues to be one of the most popular uh, genres. So while maybe Amazon is banking on its Lord of the Rings prequel, uh, Rings of Power, it's interesting to see uh, different sort of approaches with the video games IP to sort of meet that demand for sci-fi and fantasy. Yeah, just to add to that, actually, we typically see in looking at the top 100 most popular titles on SVOD, a lot of sci-fi and fantasy driving driving that and always making up a big proportion. Interesting. So um, just, just to go back to a previous point, we were talking a little bit about franchises and obviously the kind of a big part of the drive for games IP being to create new franchises or to try to find potential franchises that you can sort of adopt, particularly for SVOD platforms. Um, obviously, the major advantage of building a franchise, particularly in, say, the movie world traditionally, is the kind of synergy effect. You know, you you release a new title in the franchise, and that means that previous titles sell better or perform well. Equally, sort of, you know, once you've got a franchise, you've got an established audience, that means when you release a new title, there's a kind of pre-established sort of set amount of money there, and that makes it a lot easier for that to be sure that that release does well, because it reduces the risk potentially. Are we seeing those same dynamics play out when you have franchises that span across multiple different forms of media, so games and, and TV interacting? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we've done quite a lot of digging into this using Ampere's popularity metric. It's a proprietary metric that we've sort of used across both movies and TV and also games. Um, and what we tend to see, as you mentioned, is when a new installment is released in a franchise, um, all historic titles tend to get an uplift. So we're seeing this for things like Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings at the moment, as the new prequel series in those franchises have just been premiered. But yeah, it definitely also works across different types of media. So an example would be The Witcher. So if we take the game series, they actually really reached sort of new heights of popularity when Netflix premiered its hugely popular adaptation. And then it also came back into the top 10 best-selling games, despite being um, quite a few years old. So this really highlights that, A, using those existing games IP franchises can help create a hit new TV show or movie. Uh, but also from the other side, um, 
partnering with a player like Netflix, who has a global reach, can really um, expose the games to new audiences and sort of yeah bring more people into the, the games ecosystem. Yeah, it's interesting. There's actually quite a similar theme that we're seeing in the sports world as well and looking at auxiliary content outside of live events. So a lot of sports bodies are looking into creating more documentaries and things like that. And it's a similar thing where you can kind of rely on the success of them because you know that you've got a, uh, a fan base already established there. And if you go to someone like Netflix, as you mentioned, Lottie, you can then hope to kind of attract a new audience as well. So obviously the big example more recently is something like Drive to Survive, where you've got um, a Formula One documentary, which uh, is obviously going to have its own fan base. And then that's also then going to have a circular effect of bringing those new audiences into the live sport as well. So one result of that is in the US, we've seen the rights to Formula One go from uh, a reported around $5 million per season, $5 million per season for ESPN, to more recently ESPN spending around 75 to $90 million per season to acquire the rights to it. So you can see how increased engagement from these documentaries are kind of driving uh, financial value to those, um, those sports then as well. I think that's probably one place where someone like Netflix is an ideal partner, given the sort of strength of its distribution channels and the sheer number of international subscribers. I think one thing that's relevant about both the games and sports examples there is that it's not the company itself that is responsible for the original content going direct to the consumer. Instead, it's all about partnerships and it's all about the sort of original IP owner utilizing other sort of firms for the distribution of content onto different platforms. But that then raises the question about potential convergence in the future and whether or not we'll start to see games companies encroaching into the entertainment space or vice versa, entertainment companies encroaching into the game space. Was that something that you also sort of looked at, Lottie? And are there any kind of trends that we that we see there? It's kind of been happening for a while that games companies have been partnering with uh, players like Netflix. So, for example, Ubisoft has its own division that focuses on film and TV content. So essentially a division to produce their games into new forms of media. And through this, they partner with the likes of Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+. So for them, it's very beneficial to have the reach of these global players, but it is possible in the future that some larger companies will start acquiring movie and TV production units, um, which is essentially what Netflix has done, but the reverse. So Netflix has acquired some games studios and launched a sort of games section within its application. And this allows it to create games content from its own original IP. So the likes of Strange Things or Queen's Gambit. And not only this, but they're partnering with existing games content owners. So for example, they're going to have an Assassin's Creed game within their mobile platform. Um, and this will go alongside the sort of um, adaptation that they'll put on their video on demand service. But essentially, this allows Netflix to create existing content. It allows its users to spend more time within its platform and therefore reduce churn. So it sounds like we're seeing some overlap from a potential production standpoint, but we're still seeing ultimately the value of kind of specific distribution channels and particularly having that kind of large international platform to reach to reach more people, to potentially reach hundreds of millions of, of subscribers. Um, so a final question for you, Lottie. Where do we think this is going ultimately? You, you spoke about how games sort of commissions, if you like, or productions of content have been on the rise. Is that set to continue? What's, what does the pipeline look like for the next few years? 
Yeah, we definitely expect it to continue. Um, there's still a lot um, in production. And actually, there's a number of big franchises for which adaptations have not yet been created and there's nothing announced. So, for example, Zelda or Elder Scrolls and the companies that own these games titles, Nintendo and Microsoft, um, they've actually showed willingness to license their IP out for other TV and movie adaptations. So it's likely that we'll see something from these in the future. But there's just a continuous new stream of original games IP that can be used as well, um, rather than just those long running franchises. Um, I think looking forward as well, it's more likely that games companies will become more involved within the TV space, just due to a lot of the tools and techniques that they have available, particularly when it comes to animating content or special effects. So a lot of these tools are already used in sort of 3D games development. Um, And this will become particularly important as we approach the metaverse, just having the ability to create those virtual worlds for TV and movie content. I think that's a really important point. I, be, I believe it was the um, the Mandalorian season two where they actually used a games engine essentially to drive the special effects as opposed to traditional sort of special effects focused on TV and movies. So that makes complete sense. I think there's a lot of relevance here as well as the sort of metaverse looms, because while we might not exactly know what form the metaverse is going to take, um, what we do know is that the metaverse is going to be a 3D interactive world, which puts you very much in the kind of housing of, of, I guess, what is traditionally games-oriented research. So you will see production of game-like environments becoming more and more important to entertainment companies as they try to get their content out of there. So thanks. That's a really sort of fascinating and, and broad piece of research. Next up, we welcome Neil, who has recently been looking into the future of license fees in the age of streaming, with a particular focus on what's been happening recently in France and the changes to the fees made by the French government. So Neil, this can be quite a, uh, let's say, complex uh, topic. Could you just start by kind of giving us an understanding of what's actually happened in France and sort of the factors behind, say, some of the decisions that have have happened in the last uh, few months? Yes. So um, France is the latest country to have abolished a TV license fee. At the end of July, the French government delivered on a manifesto promise from President Macron to cut the license fee. The 138 euro fee is used to fund public broadcasting in France and is raises around 3 billion euros per year. That is then used to fund the main TV public broadcaster, France Television, and then a group of smaller TV and radio uh, broadcasters. So the fee is officially being scrapped from October when a temporary measure will be used uh, to fund public broadcasting uh, through sort of a marginal increase in VAT. And then public broadcasters will then get their funding from that sort of general pot of taxation. I think the idea behind the move is really to give spending power back to French households to really sort of uh, support the economy and to sort of encourage growth in spending. But I think something that's also driving the change is that the TV license fee model itself, where everyone's paying a, f- a flat fee and it's linked to having a TV set, is rather seen as outdated uh, with the kind of shifts in, in viewing behavior that we're seeing. You mentioned uh, sort of that they've chosen in this specific instance to replace that flat fee with a sort of model based on VAT. Were there any other alternatives that, that are in use or that they could have chosen? 
And what do you think are the sort of the reasons behind that specific decision? So that kind of specific way of, I guess, repackaging or refunding uh, the public broadcaster in France? I mean, a number of, of European uh, public service broadcasters have shifted from using a TV license fee to fund public broadcasters to sort of different alternatives. That being said, around 40% of European countries still have some form of license fee. The most kind of common sub- substitution uh, that we've seen is different forms of a sort of a tax-based funded model uh, that we've seen a lot of the Nordic countries opt for. So whether that's the kind of direct tax funding that we're seeing in France, and there's also the case in Denmark, or sort of the creation of a sort of separate media tax that is sort of protected and sort of works slightly differently. And that's the case in uh, Finland, Norway and Sweden. Um, I think the the main benefits really of moving from license fee to sort of a direct tax funded model is that you don't have the the same requirement for collection and enforcement that you might have with a license fee. Something that we've not really seen is countries opt for maybe like a subscription based model or sort of advertising now, the issue with those really are that you can't really secure sort of sufficient levels of funding if you were to take those instead. So I think that's why we've seen sort of a tax-based approach uh, be a lot more popular with countries that have shifted away from the license fee. The big question really is what does this actually mean for French public service broadcasters? Well, I think without sort of the stable levels of funding, um, that raises a lot of questions about their ability to maybe plan long term. And then this raises sort of bigger questions really about if they're vulnerable and open to any sort of political interference uh, in the long term. That's really interesting. You mentioned a a couple of sort of factors in there that have driven this decision. I just want to kind of understand, because you said that 40% of European countries have yet to sort of enact any license fee changes. To what extent do you think the factors that drove this decision in France are French-specific, um, so related to kind of that market promises that may have been made? And to what extent do you think this is just a global or a certainly European trend that's just you know coming across Europe and is likely to hit other markets? And as a follow-on to that, I suppose, are there any specific markets that you think could be next? You know, Will we be seeing some of these other 40% of countries potentially doing similar things with the licence fee in, in the near future? Yes, yeah, so I think there's maybe... A general sense across markets that the the TV license is something that's quite outdated. So I don't think that's something that's specific to to France particularly. Three major markets in Europe that still operate a TV license are Germany, Italy and the UK. Um, In the UK, the UK government have promised to scrap the TV license uh, by 2027. From what we've seen in the UK, there's not really any sort of clear and obvious um, alternative to the TV license. Um, So I think the the UK government will start to explore different options. But I think what we've seen is it's a very sort of political topic and it is quite politicised. And I think it's something that we will see more and more in debates over the role of sort of public broadcasting in the UK. I think this coupled with the decision on the sale of of Channel 4, I think we will see this sort of renewed period of questions around the the role of public broadcasting in the UK. In Italy and Germany, the licence fee is potentially more secure. The issue is definitely not as politicised as it is in the UK, uh, but that's not to say that with other sort of political pressures or the declining linear viewing in those countries, that's not something that we will uh, eventually see in, in years to come. 
you sort of uh, talk about how we're potentially just thinking closer to home, likely to see similar things happening in the UK. And I think sort of to stick up for uh, local broadcasters, it while the license fee itself might be something that increasingly is under threat because of the sort of you know prevalence and the change in viewing habits away from from linear TV. A lot of the most popular content, I think, is still produced. And I think a lot of the content that comes from these sort of local broadcasters, the BBC, Channel 4, France Television, still scores really highly. So I guess, you know, asking from a consumer perspective almost now, do you think that the changes in models in France and then potentially the UK could impact the actual content that we see on our TV screens, either from a quality or quantity perspective? I think that's definitely the case. As you were saying, European broadcasters really do have that sort of local reach. um, And we can see that when we look at audience viewing shares um, across Europe. For France Television and the the BBC, for example, they are the largest spenders on original content in their respective markets. And I think without sort of stable revenues and and maybe a funding model that ensures that they can sort of plan long term, I think it would potentially be very difficult for them to invest in original content at their sort of current levels. Now, I think this maybe could impact their ability to reach like a broad audience. So they may well have to focus on some of their public service remit programming. So whether that's their sort of regional programming or educational programming, rather than focusing more on those big budget titles. So whether that's high-end dramas or expensive entertainment programming, I think if they don't have sufficient funding, and then it could be very difficult for them to be able to have that sort of broad appeal through those sort of high reach uh, sort of genres. That's a really good point regarding sort of um, the the high budget and sort of, you know, um, high end uh, drama shows and, and if they were to reduce. Uh, Lottie, I know you've done a lot of work on the popularity of of titles. If there were to be a reduction from some of the biggest sort of European broadcasters in a couple of these sort of most high performing titles, how would that affect the market as a whole? Well, actually, what we have been seeing is a lot more local content being produced by international SVOD platforms. So Netflix and Amazon started diversifying their original slate um, a while ago now. But as platforms like Disney+, Plus, Paramount, HBO Max launch into additional markets, they'll be looking to create local content within European markets. So um, a lot of that will be high profile scripted content. But also we're seeing SVOD platforms commissioning um popular reality formats that they're now making in sort of a bunch of markets that they operate in. And this is likely to continue more, especially as they'll, if there's quotas on the amount of European content we should be seeing in catalogs um, and also individual countries' regulations on how much streamers have to sort of invest back into a market. Would that be for the UK specifically, or is that something that's being seen more widely across some of the other big European markets as well? Yeah, so I'd so the UK was one of the first areas in which international platforms started diversifying due to the sort of English language, that kind of content being sort of widely watched. But they are diversifying more, particularly focusing on markets like France, Spain. A lot of Spanish content obviously travels very well globally, again, due to the language and also German content. I guess that sort of really focuses on original content and the potential for some of the more high-end original uh, budgets from these companies um, potentially changing through the license fee uh, discussion that that Neil outlined. But also just thinking about acquired spend, obviously one of the sort of really big budget forms of acquired spend from uh, the big broadcasters would be sport. Um, Dan, do you think that potentially these changes could impact spend on sort of acquisition of sports rights? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the same situation as you have with high budget entertainment content where you just don't have the same level of budget. You've got tighter purse strings, so you can't afford to uh, invest as much in top sports competitions. In France and in the UK, you have listed events regimes. So there are competitions usually of kind of national interest or national importance where it's encouraged or the intention is that they are available on free-to-air TV. So competitions like the World Cup, the European Championships in football, um, these are major competitions that are very big opportunities for public broadcasters to acquire that kind of major sports content and be able to offer it to as wide a possible an audience in the market. If these broadcasters don't have that revenue to invest, they might have to start thinking about sub-licensing deals. So something where maybe a pay TV provider offers the majority of the competition, but the public broadcasters can only offer one or two games, maybe the final or the semi-final or only games where the national team is playing. So you're already quite dramatically reducing the amount of sports content available on the public service broadcaster. So it's going to, it has the potential to impact the offering that they provide on a sports front as well. That's really interesting. I guess, um, to, to be fair to France televisions, we're talking about this like they've already sort of uh, seen a, a big decrease in, in revenues. Uh, Neil, is that is that how it's actually worked out in practice? Or has the, has the current sort of deal seen them essentially retain the same uh, sort of spending power and revenue that they previously had? In theory, going into next year, they will have uh, the same levels of funding. So I I guess when you when you see it from that perspective, going forward, there's not any immediate cuts or big cuts to the content budget um, of France Television. I think the concern really is that protection of the the funding uh, mechanism. Although President Macron has ensured that going forward, public service broadcasting will be adequately funded, um, it's not to say that future governments with with different priorities uh, might end up cutting back on spend on public service broadcasting. So just to, to wrap up, pulling a couple of these different threads together, um, Neil, do we believe that sort of license fee change in other countries in Europe is inevitable now, um, that we're that far along that journey? And and what do we think the long-term sort of vision of uh, public broadcasters looks like across different European markets? Thinking about the, the TV license going forward, I think inevitably countries will start to move away from uh, this funding model. Although it may not be immediate um, and different countries have different sort of factors and, and different conditions to think about, I think inevitably we will see the, the end to TV license. When we think of public service broadcasting, there really is um, a key role and responsibility for, for public broadcasters. They do definitely offer something different for local audiences, whether that's regional output or developing sort of cultural diversity or, in fact, protecting against disinformation. Public broadcasters definitely do have a, a key role. Um, I think the issue for them going forward um, is dealing with that uh, declining linear viewing uh, and also the, the political pressures that they have to adapt uh, to the new media environment that we, that we have so I think we will eventually start to see some big changes in, in public service broadcasting going forward. Thanks, Neil. Some really fascinating points there. It does feel in many ways like we are sort of, with, with France making the move and the UK planning to in the next sort of couple of years that we're really approaching a bit of an inflection point here and uh, sort of the transition away, I suppose, from 
from sort of linear TV. And I think the license fee is one sort of really important potential part of uh, that um, sort of one domino that that is sort of steadily falling across different different European markets. We spoke a little just then with Dan and Neil about how some sports rights deals might be impacted by the changes in license fees over the upcoming years. But one league that almost certainly won't feel the pinch as strongly in the UK is the Premier League, where rights deals and valuations have been exploding over the past 20 years. However, by and large, we haven't seen the same growth impacted in the lower tiers of English football. In the Championship, there's a really big disparity in revenues to the English Premier League. And if we go even lower down the tier, we've seen some English clubs face real financial difficulties and even go out of business in the past couple of years. Dan Harrogy has therefore been looking into the financials of a number of clubs in and around that intersection of the top two leagues of English football and has been exploring how the revenue models might be changed in order to redistribute wealth between the leagues and what this would look like in practice. So Dan, as an Everton fan, how much of this uh, research that you've been conducting is due to the potential fear of relegation in the coming year? Well, yeah, pretty much 100% driven by that. Um, Obviously, almost got relegated last season, so I thought it was important to have a look at what kind of money we can make in the championship. Yeah, push for change early. That that makes absolute sense. Um, so um, I guess I, I mentioned the fan-led report. Could you just sort of give the listener a brief kind of overview of the actual context behind some of this analysis and, and sort of what sparked it? Yeah, sure. So it goes back to the um, issues around the European Super League, which were announced in. April 2021, um, which ended up driving the uh, need for a government-led fan review um, in the UK around sort of the governance of football. Um, And one key part of that was around the potential issues around sustainability and the financial stability of football clubs. Naturally, as you mentioned in the introduction, the Premier League generates an incredible amount of revenue. Their domestic deals account for around £1.5 billion per season. But then when you drop down below that, the TV rights deal for the English Football League, which is the tiers below that, is just around 120 million domestically per year. So it's a really steep drop off. So it was around kind of the issues surrounding the teams beneath the uh, the Premier League. So, so in practice, why is it a problem that there that there is this gap be- between the two leagues? You know, what what kind of issues are being caused by this gap that have led to sort of some of the review and, and some some of the stories that we've heard about in in sort of recent years? So it kind of works two ways. So the first one is relegation from the Premier League. So if you're in the Premier League at the moment, even if you finish last, you're generating around £100 million in in broadcast revenue from the league. But when you get relegated, you receive parachute payments from the league. So you can receive up to around about £40 or £50 million per season to kind of support that drop in total TV revenue um, and total revenues as a whole. So then you're starting to see just a select few teams who are getting relegated, naturally generating so much more than everyone else in the championship, in the division below the Premier League, because everyone else on average receives around eight to 10 million per season. So I think one issue there is you've got a select few teams who are making so much more from those parachute payments that it becomes increasingly uncompetitive, where you can have those select few teams investing so much more in quality players and in wages and everything and they're more likely to perform well and travel back up into the Premier League. The other issue is that other championship teams can see that your TV money if you do get promoted to the Premier League can increase tenfold. 
So what some clubs are doing is investing really heavily and essentially gambling on the future. And that is naturally really quite unsustainable. So if you do fail to make it into the Premier League, if you don't get promoted in the first couple of seasons, then you are really in some financial troubles. And that's something we've seen, for example, from clubs like Derby County in recent years who have had to um, either enter administration or other teams further down the, the pyramid have gone bust because they have just been spending unsustainably and not being able to, to reap the rewards from that. While that's obviously sort of unfortunate from the championship club perspective, and as a football fan, I, I have enormous sympathy. I, I guess from a sort of slightly harsh perspective, why is this potentially the Premier League's problem? Because a lot of the clubs in that league are, are very well established. Um, and for many of those clubs, they're unlikely to be affected by what happens in the sort of upper end of the league beneath. Um, so sort of what's the potential motivation, I guess, if you're a Premier League club for actually actively giving up some money to try to sort of redistribute wealth more more evenly? So I think financially, maybe Premier League clubs aren't directly impacted by what's happening here. But I think these lower league teams are massive feeders of quality players into the Premier League. So they do directly uh, feed off the value of um, investment into lower league clubs. So I think there is a value to the wider football pyramid in the UK as a whole. And I do think the Premier League does recognise that as well. Also, presumably, there's potentially the danger that some of these Premier League clubs could find themselves in the lower leagues in the future. So a potential redistribution of revenue for, say, at least half the league could be, could be relevant or something that they want to protect themselves against. I think beyond just a few teams in the Premier League, a lot of clubs are quite vulnerable now to relegation given how competitive everyone is. And to be fair to the Premier League, they distribute their TV money within the top tier very evenly comparatively to other European leagues. It's just uh, around 1.5 times the difference between the top team and the bottom team. So the, there is a high level of competition within the league itself. So relegation or, you know, competitive games is is very prevalent among a lot of clubs within the league. So, so how would the potential proposals, either from the fan-led review or from some of your analysis, um, impact this? You know, what, what would be some of the biggest things that could be done in order to potentially drive uh, down that massive gap in uh, sort of wealth between the two leagues? So essentially, the review itself recommended a an increase in discussions and essentially a resolution between the, the English Football League and the Premier League. Um, it didn't necessarily mention too many details around what that would involve, but Generally speaking, the Premier League distributes around 15% of its total TV money to the Football League itself and the wider pyramid below the top tier. I think what would essentially happen is a an increased investment from the Premier League. So that would increase to 20 or 25%. And that would go to uh, a step up in solidarity payments. So that's outside of uh, parachute payments. And that would be just an increase among clubs as a whole, regardless of uh, performance and regardless of whether they've been relegated or not. So that would step up kind of competition within the championship and the tiers below and would hopefully cover these teams against increased investment in players, uh, transfers and wages as well. Um, I actually have a quick question, Dan. Um, someone doesn't know loads about football. I guess I was just wondering if this is something that's quite unique to the Premier League or is it something that you also see in, say, like other major European leagues? So it's interesting. It's not massively similar to other leagues because the other top European leagues aren't generating as much in TV revenue. The Premier League is 
far and away the most lucrative out of those European competitions. So you do see a more significant step down into the second tier. So for example, if we look at France, um, a the bottom placed team in the top league is generating around double the amount that the top team in the lower league is generating. And that double is compared to the, the 10 times difference um, between the Premier League and the Championship when you take out parachute payments. So as there's a much more significant drop-off in the Premier League or in England. So while those other competitions in different European markets might have other issues around the total amount that they're, they're generating, it's different distribution issues rather than the contrast between the top tier and the leagues below. Bearing all that in mind, what, what comes next, Dan? Can the fan-led review actually enforce any of these changes that you're discussing? And do we think it's likely that there will be a change in revenue redistribution across the top tiers of English football in the next you know, couple of years? So the fan-led review itself um, only made recommendations for change. So there was nothing that's forcing the Premier League to, to do anything about its redistribution. Um, it is a conversation that's becoming increasingly prevalent, though, so it's possible that that kind of pressure might amount to something. Um, there's also the possibility of an independent regulator coming in, which seems to have been um, potentially put on the back burner for, a, for now. But um, it's possible that once that's imposed, that a regulator might enforce some kind of redistribution changes for the Premier League. But Nothing as of yet, and uh, it's possible that we might not see some change for, for some time now. Thanks, Dan. Um, well, I can say that as a QPR fan, I would obviously be delighted with greater redistribution of revenues into the lower leagues, but it does sound like it might be a while before I get my dreams. So I think we'll have to uh, wrap it up there. Thank you very much to all our guests for their time and for sharing their research with us. We've heard from Lottie about the increasing value of game IP in the film and TV landscape and the convergence between these sectors. We've heard from Neil about the change in public broadcaster funding and more generally the future of the license fee across Europe. And finally, we've heard from Dan about the Premier League uh, fan-led review and the potential for sort of more equal revenue redistribution between the top tiers of English football uh, in the future. All the reports discussed today are available on Ampere's website. Do get in touch if you're interested in accessing any of this research. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the Amp podcast and for more on Ampere's research and services, head to amperanalysis.com or get in touch by emailing info at amperanalysis.com. That's info at amperanalysis.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you very much for listening. <laughs>